everybody. Thank you for tuning in to the Ladies Promoting Transparent Advocacy Podcast. I am your podcast host, Shay Pate. And this tune is called Wonderful. So I thought it would be a good tune to start off my Wonderful Women Wednesday. Sit back as we celebrate a wonderful woman. Here we go. And enjoy the episode. Hey, everybody, on this wonderful Women Wednesday, as I mentioned on Monday, we are going to talk about the amazing Ava DuVernay, but mainly we're going to talk about um, the this Netflix series she did with Colin Kaepernick because I was going through channels and I was watching it. Um, and, well, I saw an interview she had done. And I said, let me just sit back and see what she's talking about. And in the interview, she was talking to a lady. I, I can't remember if her name is pronounced Christiane or Chris, Christian or Christine. Or, I don't know how her first name is pronounced because of the way it's spelled. But her last name is Amanpour. Am, Amanpour. She's famous. She's She actually has a show on CNN. But this interview was actually done on PBS. I happened to be watching it. So I got a, a, a few minutes, probably about 15 minutes of the interview, which I'm going to play. And she's mainly talking about this Netflix series she did with Colin and why, you know, Colin decided he wanted to take the series from when he was born up until he was getting ready to go to college so that people could understand who he really was other than just the San Francisco 49er quarterback who did a uh, took a knee and I'm gonna tell you something this was brilliant to do this because I, I'm a major football fan and I didn't know that much about him other than he was raised in a white family but when they take it from like a couple of days old to now I mean while well, going into college all through high high school uh, we learned a lot about him I mean he was like a major baseball star as well as he played basketball so he was going through a lot growing up and being in a white family, being black and dealing with his hair and braids. And I mean, the series is amazing. And I'm glad that they did it from him being a couple of days old until he was ready to go to college because I totally look at him differently. And to be honest with you, all he's been through, I'm really surprised he's not what they call, quote, an angry black man because he went through a lot uh, psychologically uh, dealing with his culture of uh, being half black. So I thought they did an amazing job. She talks about it. She's also asked about her opinion on critical race theory. And she talks about being a female director who can tell stories pertaining to people of her culture. So it was a good interview. And I want you guys to check it out. Um, but before we do that, let's just talk about who she is. I went to her uh, website and I was reading the about page, but the only thing about this is some of the stuff is mentioning things that have already happened. So I'm not really sure why it's not updated, but let me just tell you just a little bit. And this is from AvaDuvernay.com. And it says that she is a writer, producer, director, and distributor of independent films, winner of the MEBAFTA and Peabody Awards, Academy Award, Nominee Ava DuVernay is a writer, director, producer, and film distributor. 
I already said that. Her directorial work includes the historic drama Selma, the criminal justice documentary 13th in Disney's A Wrinkle in Time, which made her the highest, check this out, highest grossing black woman director in America, in American box office history. Wow. You know, and they started talking about other movies such as, which I've, I think I've seen almost all her movies. Uh, the Central Park Five. Oh my goodness! When they see us, mm. and then I watch her show Queen Sugar, and I didn't hear about. I haven't seen the Red Line Chairs today's coming up in middle of nowhere, but I do um think that she puts a lot of details into her work and makes it so that we can understand what's going on. You know, I was looking through her uh, list of movies and they were talking about, you know, other movies that I didn't know if she had impact on, which was um, my girl's trip movie was it. I love that movie. That was a, a good movie. I will follow. I mean, it's just so many uh, things of great work that she's done. But as I said, I want to focus mainly on this uh, Colin in Black and White series on Netflix that she did. So what I want to do is let you all listen to the interview she did with Miss Amapur. And I know I'm messing her name up, so I apologize. But um, I, I think it's important that it is known that she is telling stories that need to be told. And the interview she did, I personally thought it was extremely honest and um, I'm, I'm politically correct. Well, you know, a lot of times we have to watch, especially as African-Americans, we have to be politically correct about a lot of things, whether we want to be or not. And I think she was just, I loved everything she said and how she said it and was kind of surprised she was so bluntly honest, but... I don't know her, so this might just be who she is, which to me is amazing. Uh, she was keeping it real, and I think it's important when you are empowered that you use that platform to tell uh, the stories, as she said, of her culture and her people, but to also be able to speak honestly about how you feel or how things affect you. And maybe with your power, people will listen. So check out this interview she did, and we'll talk about it on the other side. Specifics in there with families who have been victims of police brutality. And so now we're calling Kaepernick. Uh, I feel like I'm getting a little more used to it. I feel like I, I know how to do it. And it's really about respect. Imagine if you were handing your life over to someone, you know, and all the trust it takes to say, Portray me well, you know, express what I want to say and uh, and take that seriously. So what did Colin Kaepernick say to you? Colin in black and white yeah. is about to launch on Netflix. He, yes, he came to me and he said that he was interested in doing something on his early life. And um, when I first heard it, I thought, oh, let's do something on now. Like, let's start with the new one. Like, let's do it now. But he had a very particular point of view as to why he wanted to kind of lay a foundation for who he was by starting with his early adulthood, which I think... At the end of the project now, I think was quite wise. It allows people to enter into a story kind of a little free, more free of the politics around it, and just see a kid who is struggling to, um, you know, uh, control and determine what his voice would be. And uh, so it has a nice effect. It it it, it was a um, a decision that was solely based on what he wanted to do, and I'm glad that I leaned into it. It really does take away from the politics and the cultural war that's erupted over taking the knee. Yeah. 
And that's a culture war that's extended to the UK, the soccer players, and, and in so many places. Are you surprised that that small act, significant small act, has become such a poison chalice? I don't know if I'm surprised by it. I think if you look at Tommy Smith, um, if you look at Muhammad Ali, if you look at athletes who have tried to take control of their own narrative, there's something about the athlete that is in such a controlled system. Baseball, football, you know, um, uh, uh, American football, uh, all of these, these, these are institutions that have systems. And the athlete in the middle of it is expected to behave and perform in a certain way. Right? That is a controlled way, that is a very defined way. Anyone who steps outside of that um, is committing a radical act, right? And so um, I'm not surprised that it caused the ire that it has. What surprises me is the reverberations now six years later. In Cornrows, the first episode, it, it's very dramatic and somewhat uncomfortable, I suppose by design, where you sort of go from image to image, slave auction to NFL recruitment. Mm -hmm. What are you saying? Well, this was something that was really important to Colin. He felt that when he went through the NFL combine process, which I wasn't even aware of, there's this process that as you're entering into professional American football, um, you are measured as in predominantly black men. Are, uh, their muscles are measured. Their, their, um, their strength is calculated. Um, they are on tables with their shirts off, just in their briefs, um, with doctors around, kind of pot poking and prodding, and that this is a very invasive process for the black body to go through to be commodified to determine what the potential for profit is. And they saw that as analogous to the slave auctions where black men, women, and children were put on slave blocks to be poked and prodded to assess if they could work in the fields properly or in the house. And so he saw an analogy between that, which I thought was striking, and uh, agreed that there was a conversation to be had. So we opened the series on these images that really asks us to... Um, consider how we value black life. And um, is it only valuable when it is famous, when it is respectable, when it is um, in service to uh, the dominant culture, or is it just inherently of value? Because he was a quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, and then you know his career took a dive because of taking the knee. But let's go back to how you start, because it is about his childhood and the cornrows. Tell me why that was so important and so formative for a young black kid, but he's mixed race because his mother was white, his father was black, he's adopted by a white family. The significance of the cornrows. Right. Well, each episode tackles something that on its surface is, you know, seemingly unimportant, right? Um, or something small, um, you know, uh, every episode, him getting his license, um, uh, this issue with the first time he took a girl to prom, asked a girl to prom. Within each of the episodes, though, reminding it for cultural context and talking about things like identity and privilege and respectability and race and class. So in the first episode, the one I directed, we talked about cornrows. This is just a teenager who wants to have a new hairstyle. His parents don't really like the hairstyle. What kid has this not happened to? But within this episode, we talk a little bit more about the significance of black hair. Because black hair over uh, the generations has really been not really black hair, but just a proxy, proxy for social control, right? Um, most people don't know that black men were um, you know, really required not to have facial hair. 
uh, in the early part of the last century, black women, you know, most black women that you'll see, majority of black women, have straightened or processed hair. It's more respectable. You'll get the job. It's more amenable to a white palate, right, um, to be more like whiteness. And so uh, these are even the hair I wear, you know, is a political act, right? Well, yes, this is naturally coming out of my head this way, right? And I don't straighten my hair. I used to, right? I don't straighten my hair. And the idea that um, hair has to be a question for black people as to how it will uh, be processed or not processed is something that non-black people uh, don't even have to think about or deal with. Uh, and so the idea of taking this, this cornrows, this seemingly small thing in this boy's life, really putting that into and juxtaposing it with the larger cultural context is what we do throughout the series. And particularly, I mean, he, he, he has a first try with the cornrows and it's so painful and he gets a headache and it's not done properly. And then somehow he gets his mom, his white mother, mm -hmm. to take him to the first black barbershop or hairstylist. And it's like walking into Nirvana or some said Narnia. I mean, it's like opening the door and going into the most fantastic reality for him. Well, he was in proximity to blackness for the first time, right? Going into a space that is inherently black, right? Black people, black, you know, um, uh, lifestyle, uh, anecdotes, food, music, hairstyle. And having been in a white family, a predominantly white, white town, he had no proximity to something that he was attracted to and felt a part of. So in those early days when he was going into the barbershop, which we know the black barbershop and beauty salon is, you know, a real a therapeutic kind of sacred place for some people, right? Um, he goes into that space and he feels an affection, an affinity, a connection to something that he'd been disconnected from. He has said in interviews that this is not just for black and brown people to look at and hopefully get inspiration and learn about their culture, their heritage, what's their right, what's their special place, but also for white people to observe the microaggressions, all the daily, you know, abuses that, that so many black people face. Growing up with white parents, I moved through life with their audacity of whiteness. I assume their privilege was mine. So the question is, what about his family, who are white? The mother and the father around the dinner table say, Colin, it's time for you to stop wearing that hair because you won't get here, there, or anywhere. And anyway, the mom says it makes you look like a thug. And thug was what the NBA player, who was his, his sort of, he looked up to. Yes, Alan Iverson. Exactly, who had the, the cornrows. He had been called that by others. Did the mother call him a thug? And have they seen the series? Um, he, I don't know if they see the series. That's Colin's responsibility to tell his parents, so I don't know what he's done. Um, but, uh, but yes, he says that, that that did happen. The interesting thing about working with the characters of the parents for me is, you know, whenever I'm working as a director, a writer, producer on a piece, I have to feel a connection to every character because I'm writing that character. I'm helping portray that character to the direction. And so for me, I had to really think about his white parents. And as I talked with them and kind of got to know them through his eyes, I felt like these were well-meaning people who, who loved him. As you watch the series, there's no doubt that there's a care, that there's a love there, there's a connection to their boy. This is their son, but that they were ill-equipped to be raising a black man. They just did not know how to do that, and they wanted him to be like them. 
They didn't want him not to be himself. They wanted to keep him safe. We know how to do that over here when you're with us doing this. We don't know how to protect you over there. We've got to get out of a place where we're demonizing or criminalizing folks for what they don't know. And at that time, they just did not know, but they were well-meaning. And, um, and over the years, they started to uh, warm to what he wanted to do, to what he was attracted to, and, uh, and kind of come to a place of understanding. What do you want to be the lasting legacy of this series? What, what do you want, or, or the immediate, that viewers take away? For me, I, I hope people don't walk away from this and say, oh, this was a piece about Colin Kaepernick. I hope that they come out of it thinking about their own journey. And I'm not saying that in a sweet, saccharine way. I'm saying, truly, this is about the little things that happen to you that you just hold dear, and you don't really even think about how it affects who you have become. You know, our road takes all these little turns based on small things, microaggressions, or little something someone said to you. You know, someone told me once, oh, you have dark elbows. So I never show my elbows. I, I always have this on. Right? Seriously, seriously. Still, even still, the older you know. I was nine. But even now? Yeah, I know. But they you're told me that. I know, but they told me that. And, and when I'm getting dressed, I always think about it. This is what life is. It's the little things that change us, that go deeper. And that's what I want to show you. That Cornwall's incident changed him. The, epi the, the, the episode you'll see where it's his first interaction with a black girl changed him, right, as a girlfriend. All of the little things that shape us and ask people to interrogate, what are those for me? What are the little things that I've been told about myself that I accepted as true? And what do I need to retell? So I want to. Next time you see me, I'm going to be in a I, I want to see I'm it. I'm going to. Yes, you cannot <laughs> allow that okay. to shape your life. It doesn't shape your life, but to shape the way you dress. That's right. Colin has been lambasted as well as admired for what he's done. Um, some have said, "Oh my gosh, if he really loved football, he'd keep playing instead of you know kneeling." So this is what he said. I'm still up at 5 a.m. training five, six days a week, making sure I'm prepared to take a team to a Super Bowl again. That's not something I will ever let go of, regardless of the actions of 32 teams and their partners, to deny me employment. Will he ever make peace with what's happened? Do you think he'll ever go back to the NFL? I mean, I know you don't know, but... What I don't mean, if it goes back to the NFL, it's up to the NFL. The right. NFL has been the institution that's blocked him, that's blackballed him. He's prepared and stays ready to play. Um, you know, as a friend, that's not my wish for him. I don't wish for anyone to go into an unhealthy, racist environment. That is what the National Football League in the United States is straight up. Um, but he has a desire and a great love of football and, you know, stays ready and prepared to go back. So, it's up to them. The great director, Jane Campion, mm -hmm. who has had long periods where she doesn't produce a film, and now there's a new one coming yeah, out. Yeah, new one, The Power of the Dog, yeah. which I'm really looking forward I to seeing. Too. But she has said that she feels things have changed for women directors since the Me Too movement, but that nonetheless, everything she does is focused on womanhood, on what it means to be a woman, every piece of work she does. That's her mission, she says, because half the world's population are completely underrepresented. So you have made your name focusing on African-Americans, the legacy of slavery, and everything that it means to be black, whether Selma, 13, and when they see us, and now this. Is that your mission? Do you feel absolutely conscious that is what you will do for the rest of your working life? I feel attracted to that and activated by it and invigorated by the fact that I get to tell stories about my people, about black people. Um, so it doesn't feel like weight. It doesn't feel like a responsibility. It doesn't feel like anything I need to commit to. As an artist, I'm attracted to doing things that I'm interested in. And I'm interested in us. Um, why? 
because there's not enough out there and that there's so many other stories to tell. You look at a hundred years of uh, cinema and you look at the fra fraction of that that's been dedicated to black life and black people, there's so much more to do. If I'm in a position that I get to do it, I say give it to me. How do you feel about critical race theory and the backlash towards it in culture right now here? I think the backlash is, is pedestrian, it's uninformed, uh, it's people who are uneducated about uh, what critical race theory is, um, the words have been weaponized, the theory is not even being fully understood, uh, I think it's Kay Ivey, the governor of Alabama, sent out a tweet a few days ago saying, critical race theory has been banned, we're teaching our children to read and write. Mm -hmm. like, are they the same thing? No. Uh, critical race theory is a theory that's taught usually at the collegiate level, um, and it is about systems. It is about looking at the structures and systems that have been put in, in place uh, to uh, to uh, create hierarchy, to create and enforce caste, um, and the idea that we are so afraid of our own history that we can't even teach what's happened in the past to our children is insanity uh, and it is a road to destruction and despair. So another water cooler item that's cropped up has been the removal or the moving of the statue of Thomas Jefferson at the New York City Council. Mm -hmm. So this was put up in 1834 by uh, a Jewish gentleman, mm -hmm. Levy, who did it in response and in gratitude to Thomas Jefferson's proclamation for religious freedom. and. Thomas Jefferson had slaves. And my question to you is, what, when you get to that level, what, what should we be thinking about that? If you, you're owning 600 human beings, um, are you worthy of having statues in public spaces because of something good that you did over here? It's a worthy conversation. It's, it's about... Um, it's about taking a closer look at our American heroes and really uh, not accepting the established narrative. And so, what on Can I ask you another question, which is major water cooler, and I ask you as a director, obviously the tragic shooting that happened on the set of Rust with Alec Baldwin. Do you have those fears now when you think about being on set and if there are guns or, or whatever or other you know, dangerous items. You know, it was a gut punch to hear about uh, that incident. I think for anyone that works on sets, you know, I'm, I'm, I spend, you know, half of my years on a set. Um, and that space is such a sacred space. It's such an intimate space. It's such a space of trust with everyone around you. Um, this is a set where protocols went wrong. Um, things that are established in our industry did not happen. For me, we, we stopped using guns, real guns on our sets five years ago. Any set that I control, any set of anything I direct, when it comes out of our production company array, uh, we use rubber guns and we use things that are just toys, they're hollow on the inside. There's no reason to still be having live ammo on a set. But the bottom line is they shouldn't be on sets is my stance. So I think, think more, I think you'll find more crews will say we don't want it and more directors will say no. And um, I doubt there'll be resistance uh, much longer. Unfortunately, the tragedy has put us in a place where, you know, it, it may help our industry. One of the things I hate about recording from TV that's through a recording and with the pandemic, everybody's separate and stuff is that audio can be a little distorted. So I apologize about the unclarity of some of that interview um, that you just heard.
You know, in that interview, the subject came up about the shooting of a person in a movie that Alec Baldwin is doing right now. And she talks about the prop guns. And I'm kind of surprised that that is actually um, an issue that hadn't been resolved, especially after years and years ago. If you remember um, Brandon Lee, the amazing actor, martial art legend, Bruce Lee's son, that's how he died. He, um, they had reported, they said the OSHA investigators had reported that he was killed by bullet fragment during a scene in which the blanks were supposed to be fired from a 44 caliber Magnum pistol. But it was reported that, um, it, it, that that's not what happened. He was killed with a prop gun on a movie set. Now, it was interesting because Brandon Lee, you know, like I said, he's from a very famous person. And he had talked about this fear when he had did the movie um, The Crow. And unfortunately, uh, <laughs> that is the same type of thing that happened. And it's so funny because I just happened to see an article in the Washington Post entitled, Brandon Lee was killed by a prop gun on The Crow decades after. After, I mean, excuse me, decades before Alec Baldwin shot Hannah Hutchins. And I thought after this had happened, that that would be like a serious thing in Hollywood. Now, this was in the Washington Post on October 22nd. And, you know, I think that it should have been handled, especially after this. And see, Brandon Lee was only 28. When this happened, you know, he was killed in 1993, like I said, after a co-star fired a prop gun that contained a real bullet when he was doing The Crow. And he, I remember um, watching an interview he did, and he was talking about that being a fear. So, um, I don't know. I just really hope... Um, yeah, and let me just say this. Um, after the aftermath of this happening on the set of uh, Alec Baldwin's movie it said that the Lee, uh, Lee's family offered their support to the families because they know exactly how it feels to be in that situation. And I don't know who this is, but someone named Brandon Bruce Lee, I'm guessing this is his son. He, he does a Twitter page and it says, our hearts go out to the family of Hannah Hutchins and to Joel Sosa and all involved in the incident on Rust. No one should ever be killed by a gun on a film set, period. And I think this is, I'm guessing this is Brandon's son because it says Brandon Bruce Lee on Twitter. So um, they asked her about that and she gave her comments, but my little two cents is any set should not have real bullets in it and whoever's job it is to check it should check it up until the second that it is needed on the set because I mean oh that's that's really really dangerous so uh, I just wanted to make those comments and like I said there are so many amazing things about this amazing lady Ava D DuVernay but I wanted to focus on her interview that she did 
regarding the Netflix special, Colin in Black and White, and why they did some of the things they did. And, has, and as she mentions, why Colin decided to make it about him growing up so that people could understand who he was as an individual, not just as a football player who took a knee. And I, like I mentioned, I am really, really impressed that they did this because after seeing what he went through, even like I mentioned before on my interview, on, I mean, on my episode on Monday, his friends, his two best friends, they had interesting um, perspectives on things. And it was unfortunate that his black friend's perspective is more normal than not, but sadder. And um, for you African-American girls, I want you all, if you watch this movie, ch pay attention to the episode called Crystal. Because, unfortunately, this has been something in the black community for years. Light skin, dark skin. Um, and as I mentioned in the episode, the doll test. And we need to make sure that all of our women of every race, but the African-American or dark-skinned woman, needs to feel loved and beautiful as well. And I brought, I mean, I just really, really am glad that they, uh, that Colin learned the lesson and and did not go against uh, his own feelings. And I think that it's important to just acknowledge Jay and Michael, the young man who played Colin. He played that role so well. I literally just made him Colin. And um, it, it's, it's a good movie. So Friday, we're going to wrap this Colin week up and just talk about Colin. You know, we would, well, of course, just a little bit. Uh, I might play one or two clips from him from the series but i'm going to just talk about other things about him so that we can know who this man is and he's still fighting he said he's still ready so ava this was a great partnership and as always thank you for telling our culture our story and in this interview telling your truth <laughs> Well, guys, this will end this episode, and I hope that the information that you received is inspiring, uplifting, and informative. As I always say, follow us on Twitter at Advocacy Ladies. That's capital A is in advocacy, capital L is in ladies. We are also now on Instagram, and forgive me because I'm still trying to learn Instagram, but we are, we are on Instagram also at Advocacy Ladies. And you can follow us on many of the podcast apps. We are on Apple iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Pandora, Alexa TuneIn, and of course, my hosting podcast company, Podbean. If you have any questions or subjects you want us to look into, give us a call. We're at 404-855-7723, or you can send us an email at podcasthostshaypate19 at gmail.com. And you know my favorite question is, what do you have to say? Thank you for listening. <laughs>